This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Operation Integer. A study in the seemingly impossible call for unity in the body of Christ. We are classified as conservatives, which means we know what we believe, we typically know why we believe it, and we know what we don't believe, and we know what we disagree with. And so conservatives specialize in certain things. One of them is separation, segregation, factions, schisms. We know what denomination we hold to, we know what our belief system is, and we know that that person's wrong. And so as a result, we know how to distance ourselves, and we know how to segregate, but how to unite? Unity is actually almost a hard word for many of us to, to talk about because we've seen how unity has been used in our modern day. Oh, we unify over anything. It doesn't matter if we disagree. It doesn't matter you know, if they're saying the exact opposite and denouncing the person of Jesus Christ. Hey, unity at all costs. And so as a result, a conservative actually struggles with understanding unity because it actually is almost like a phobia. The same way we have a phobia of works. Well, we don't want to do anything in our Christianity because we're afraid of you know, declaring that we're saved by anything but the uh, shed blood of Jesus Christ and by faith alone. So it's like, no, I cannot do anything. And it ends up with an odd, perverted version of Christianity. The same thing can happen in and amongst us we want, we know what it says in Scripture about unity, but, oh, come on. He doesn't actually expect us to have it, does he? So, uh, the study in the seemingly impossible call for unity in the body of Christ. Either it's possible or it's not. If it's not possible, well, then I want to give up trying to make it happen in the church right now. I don't want to have to pray for it. If it's not going to happen anyways, why would I waste any time thinking about it, preaching about it, talking about it, reasoning about it, longing for it. Why don't I just accept the fact that we're splintered into a thousand different groups in the church of Jesus Christ. We have no coordination amongst our limbs because this limb is desiring to do something completely different than this limb over here. And as a result, you can't really call us a body because if a body functioned that way, it would be splattered all over the the earth and it would be dead. You see, a body to live needs to be united. Simple principle of body life. If your arm is hanging out over there doing its own thing, it's not functional. It is actually a non-operative arm. And so as a result, as the body, since we are so clearly articulated in Scripture to be such, I, I don't know, but I think this probably is important. My dream. So I read this to the practicum students on Friday night, and I thought it would be also really good to read it this morning. This is actually something that was written for the church here. Those that were, uh, I don't know if it was family, I think it was family ship when we were officially uh, starting and launching our local church. And I read this, and it's called My Dream. It's quite a dream. So I'll read, read you my dream. That we would be a church that is always uncomfortable, a church that is always wanting more of Jesus Christ, a church that rejoices in all things, not some things, all things, 
A church that forgets how to fear and only knows how to trust. A church packed full of new believers. Not just a whole bunch of old stodgy ones, but new believers. People that are discovering Jesus. Why? Because we're talking about them. A church where 30% of the congregation would be termed full-time missionaries. So what do you do? Well, I'm a missionary. Well, there's a lot of missionaries here. That's right. You see, we are a church that is literally grooming people to go, to serve, to give up their lives. A church in which 100% of the believers inside it are involved in active discipleship. So any of us could be asked, so are you being discipled right now? Yes, I am. Of course. I mean, why wouldn't we be disciples? Discipleship isn't just for some like 18 to 20-year-old range of time in your life. It's like, oh yeah, back when I was 18, I was discipled. Aren't we always the disciples of Jesus Christ? Aren't we always learning, always growing? I mean, that's my life. My life is continued study, continued sanctification, continued conviction. I can't get away from it. God is continuing to work on me. Well, I'd expect that we would be a church where the same thing is happening throughout. A church that prays together, often and always, fervently and with persistence. A church that gives of their time, their talents, their resources, and their lives. A church in which everyone is an evangelist and every believer leads at least 12 people to Christ annually. Isn't that interesting? I was mentioning this to the practicum students. That in the spring of this year, we actually had those numbers that we were talking about. If every single one of us, if we had 200 believers, and every one of us led one person a month to the Lord. Just one. I mean, in a whole month, the whole month, you're praying, you're looking, you're going out and desiring to see one, just one. That's actually not that many. One in an entire month. If every single one of us went after one in an entire month, so we'd have 12 each a year. And then we discipled that person, that one every month, to do the same. In seven years, we would have reached over 7.6 billion people. Yeah, it's called changing the world. And it actually doesn't even sound that difficult when you look at it on paper. It's like, oh, just one? And yet, for many of us, we're like, one? <gasps> I mean, we, some of us have never even led one person in our entire life, let alone one in this next month. That's because we need to be discipled. We need to be growing together as a body to begin to function as the body functions. When the body is the body, it changes the world in which it's in. To be honest, we've, most of us have grown up around the church, in the church, and we haven't seen a world changed by it. We've seen the, the church changed by the world. Not very impressive. And how about this? A church that becomes known as the happiest church in the world. That, that flowed out of the fact that in my, uh, at, at my dinner table, we came up with a vision for the Ludi family, and that's that we would be the happiest family in the world. So I figured I'd share that with you guys, and we could be the happiest church in the world. Out of all the churches, if there was an Olympic event, you know, and they were measuring happiness, it's like, what are they doing in Windsor, Colorado? That is just pure happiness. <laughs> that's right. So I wanted to add another thing to my dream list, okay? So that's the dream list I gave in January 2nd of this year. I want to give you another dream, okay? I think it's worthwhile for us to spend some time thinking about. A church marked by heavenly integrity. You see, when I say the word integrity, I know what you're defaulting to. However, this is somewhat of a play on words because the word integrity has two key definitions. And so... A church marked by heavenly integrity, which is what this message is about. Integrity. So just in case you're struggling with the pronunciation, I have a little pronunciation guide for you down there. That really helps, I know. The first definition, 
for integrity is the one most of us know. You know, like the, the movement of promise keepers was basically, that's one of the definitions of integrity is one that keeps their promise. So when they say their word, when they give their word, they keep their word. That's integrity. Honest, honorable, faithful, true, loyal, and trustworthy. Classic understanding of integrity. It's the type of thing we want. We need it in the church, and so I'm not going to diminish that. I want heavenly that, because that's Jesus. When Jesus speaks it, you can take it to the bank. You know he'll do it. When the word of God says it, it's done. That's what our faith rests in. And so as a result, of course, we want that in our midst. However, there's a second definition. It means whole and undivided. And this came from our staff meeting this last week when we were dealing with the preparation for the uh, the practicum students coming in, and just the burden that we have of knowing how to articulate certain things, how to go after certain things. We were bringing this up, and I don't remember if it was Philip or Dan. We've, we've had sort of discussion. I think they both sort of brought it up simultaneously that the word integrity actually has a second meaning. And so that's where this message is even coming from. Whole and undivided, unified together. Isn't that an interesting thought to think that integrity would mean whole, unified, you, together, undivided, undistracted, undenied, I threw this in for, for all of us, undenominationalized. That's all denominations are. It's different seg- segments and separations and denominations. Unwilling or unable to be broken into parts. No, no, you're not going to separate us on this point. I know, devil, what you're trying to do. You're trying to get us to dicker and to differ and to have a schism and a faction. I know how you work. We are unwilling to break apart. We're unwilling to fall for that bait. We know how the devil works. We know what he's up to. So we are not going to play along with it. It's called integrity. Isn't that just such an interesting twist on the word? So it comes from the Latin integer. So thus the name of this message, Operation Integer. Now for those of you that have a mathematics background, you're like now feeling comfortable. It's like, all right, now this is my territory. So I have another pronunciation guide for you for integer. An integer is a whole number, a number that is not a fraction. You see, in scriptures, we don't usually use the word fraction. We use the word faction. It means a separation, a division of things. So you have two people, but there's a faction between them. So now you no longer have two really together. You have one over here and one over here. And you've split something that was meant to be whole. A thing complete in itself. So here's some fractions for you. To, I'm sorry, some integer comparisons. 1.0 versus 1.5. Which one is the integer? The integer is the one on the left because one of the definitions is after the decimal point, there can be nothing. It's, it's a whole number. So if something else is after the decimal point, that's a part or a piece of something. And so an integer is a whole. So 1.0, by the way, I'm giving my answer away. This isn't really supposed to be a quiz. Is the integer, 1.5 is not an integer. 4.0 versus 4.76598. Anyone want to hazard a guess on which one is the integer? Mm -hmm. You are right. The one with the zero after the decimal point. 10.0 versus 10.005. It's not even much of a distinction, but there's still a little part there. And as long as there's a little part there, it's not an integer. Okay, now here's a trick question for you. 300.0 church members at Ellerslie versus 
Which one is the integer? Yeah, that's a tough one, isn't it? You see, there's a difference between the two. God is interested in bringing all together. Not 299.99999 together, but all 300 together. And that is something that most of us cannot even comprehend. We have no idea of how that would even work. And to be honest, I'm not some great guy to give you all solutions for this. All I know is that God has intended it. God has given us all we need for life and godliness. He's given us all the equipment we need called grace to be able to obey and move forward. We need to have a vision, though. We need to know what his end is so we know what to go after. So an individual body that is an integer, or in other words, one that demonstrates integrity. This is the great vision. Paul seems to bring this up quite a bit. He, he's, you see, an individual body that is an integer is an interesting thought. For instance, you are a body, you have a body, and if your body is not an integer, if it doesn't function as a whole, your body doesn't function well. So, for instance, if your ears are disobeying the rest of your bodies, they have a ring in them, okay? I don't know if any of you have ever had a ring in your ears, but it actually distracts and harasses the rest of the body. When your eyes look where they're not supposed to look, have you ever had it where you're, you're, you're like decided, I'm not going to look at that anymore. No, no, I've had enough of that. I am going to keep my eyes on the right things. But your eyes don't listen to you. Your mind makes a decision, and then your eyes go rogue, and they start looking at something that they're not supposed to look at. And what happens? The whole body is polluted. You see, when one element is in disagreement with the other elements, it actually causes a breakdown for the whole. If your ankle is sprained, it's amazing, but you, your whole body has to change its way of getting around. You see, every piece of the body matters. And when it's not working in harmony together, your body's struggling. Spiritually speaking, we are bodies. Not just physically speaking, but spiritually. And you have different aspects of your spiritual life that if they are not in agreement with each other, your spiritual life will not work. It will not be a conduit through which the Holy Spirit can move freely. And so as a result, your body needs to come under the control of the Holy Spirit, every aspect of it, so that you are given to God and you are in agreement. Your hands are doing what they're supposed to be doing. Your mind is thinking what it's supposed to be thinking. Your lips and your tongue are speaking what they need to be speaking. Your nose is smelling, your ears are hearing, your heart is beating for that which is in agreement with God, and it's called the body of Christ. So, in other words, it's a body that demonstrates integrity. You see, if you have a body that is all in agreement with the kingdom of heaven, what would you say about it? Well, that's a life of integrity because it's constant. It's consistent. It says one thing with its mouth, and guess what? Its hand obeys. Its hand is in agreement. The entire body is consistent with each other. Okay, now that's an individual body. Now, if we were to stretch that truth over a corporate body, you begin to see the idea that is enunciated in Scripture. Imagine my eyes being in perfect agreement and unity with my mind and heart. Imagine my tongue only speaking that which is in perfect concord with my spirit convictions. Imagine my appetite and sexuality functioning in perfect congruence with the word of God. That's just called integrity. That is an integer. There is no dot something else. It's dot zero. There is no parts. There is no other things. This is one. It's a whole number. A corporate body that is an integer, is it even possible? I, that would be a really fascinating thing. I know that 
you sort of have to say, of course it's possible. But if we were to get past just knowing what the Word of God says, or even knowing what I've already said today, I think all of us can really relate to the fact that, I don't know, I mean, I can have faith that God can do this and do this and do this, but could he actually bring the body of Christ together to be marked as an integer, that we are all about the same thing, doing the same thing, thinking the same thing, that we are functioning to the same end, all of us in agreement. And if you talk to this person over here, they're in agreement with this person over here. It's like, well, that's impossible. Haven't you seen the conservative side of the church? We're chaos. Is it possible that we could be about one thing instead of 300 different things? So let's just take this body. Could we all be about the same thing? Or do we have to be split? Do we have to be in a disagreement? Most of us understand. I mean, I lead an organization that literally brings together every conceivable conservative denomination. So I'm very aware of this. In fact, who knows? Maybe one of the resident experts on the topic in the world today. I understand how difficult this is. And I understand that most of us start with the premise that, okay, I know there's going to be a lot of things we're going to disagree on. And that's true. I mean, we'll disagree on what the best color in the world is. Could you imagine if I said, who's the best football team? And, you know, some of us are like, Broncos. And then someone who just moved, you know, from another state is sort of like, you've got to be kidding. (laughs) You think I'm actually going to be able to get along with these people here in Denver? (laughs) Is it possible that we could come together to do the same thing with extraordinary precision and excellence. Can you imagine if all of us woke up each day with the exact same mission statement and we were in agreement? Let's get it done together. Hey, guys, let's get it done together. What's your role? What's your role? What's your role? We're all doing the same thing. I don't know, because we all have our different lives, our different jobs. We have our different focuses. I mean, we're just sort of a mishmash. We just came together to hear a sermon this morning, Eric. I mean, do you actually expect us to work together? Well, I don't know how that actually works, but... Yeah. I mean, I have to change to adapt to that, too. I have my life. I have things I need to get done. I have kids. I have, you know, I have stuff. I'm a, I have things I get done every day, and I need to somehow work with you guys? I mean, come on, that's work. That's hard. Or is it mandatory that we all do our own thing with mediocre results? Can we believe the same thing? You see, when Paul talks about unity, he talks about being of the same mind, and I... I tell you what, I could bring up soteriology, eschatology, the gifts of the spirits, how the Holy Spirit comes, and head coverings, you know, the position, the role of the women in the church, how we take communion, how baptism is supposed to work. And we could break into little small segments. Like, who has the view of such and such? And you come up here, there's like three of us up here, go, yeah, the rest of you stink. <laughs> we could divide into groups fairly easily, even in this room. And yet we're not doing that. Why? Because we're focusing on something greater. You see, we may disagree on what the best pizza is, but there are certain things we cannot disagree on. And those are the things that cause us to unite. We unite on things that are greater than pizza types. If the body were an integer, what could possibly happen as a result? Ah... I don't even know that my brain can function and actually think of it, actually envision what this would look like if we all were about the same thing. If we all knew what we were doing and we all knew our role in it. That's what a body is. I mean, the thumb understands that it's a part of the life of Eric Ludi. And this is Eric Ludi's thumb. 
So therefore, it is serving the agenda of this mind, which is sort of the captain, and it's sort of telling, okay, this is what you're going to do, Thumb. You're going to pick up, I actually eat with my left hand, so this is, I was going to say, you pick up the fork, that's going to be a really awkward meal, and, or maybe I, do I knife, do I cut with it? Yeah, I would cut with it. So you pick up the knife, and you agree with your left hand, which is, you know, sticking a fork in the steak, and you're going to slice like this. No, 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 this is the right pace. Uh-huh. Now, don't cut the other thumb. That, that doesn't get you anywhere. Okay, no, don't cut through the plate. There's a proper place to start. You see, when that thumb agrees with the rest of the hand, which agrees with the rest of the arm, which agrees with the rest of the body, you can cut a piece of steak and get that piece of steak into this mouth as long as that jaw will agree to start chewing. And don't swallow until you at least have 28 chews. Having flashbacks to my growing up years. <laughs> Ephesians 4. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. So this is the beginning of chapter 4 of Ephesians, and it's a therefore, which means it's a conclusive statement. So contextually, Paul is covering a lot of ground before this. And if any of you have studied under Nathan uh, Johnson, then you've heard a lot about Ephesians. But we have a buildup of the position of Christ and our position in him and the role and the significance of the church of Jesus Christ. So the context of this is actually the role of the church, the role of the body, that integer that we are supposed to be. And so I'll go to the context in just a second, but I want to read what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 4. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. So this is a form of living that is actually not normal for us. We are Christians now, which therefore means we are behaving in a manner amongst each other, which is supposed to be otherworldly. It's supernatural. It is enabled by grace. So it says that you walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Do you know how high of a calling, how high of a uh, way of living that would be? To live according and to that level of the calling you've received. Uh, That's a pretty high level of living. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. See, you're getting a few of the key strategy points of how this even works. First of all, you do not think highly of yourself. You are willing to be whatever body part God assigns you to be. And so if you're stuck in the shoe and you're that pinky toe, you gladly do it. In other words, you don't complain and say, hey, I should be the nose. With all lowliness of mind, you serve. And with love, you recognize that this body called the body of Christ is accomplishing something in this earth. Our job is to agree with what it's accomplishing and not to try and accomplish our own thing. And so I made this big for you, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. This is actually a commission of a very specific task that we do. We endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit. So we are laboring to keep something. Intact. Is that unity intact? I don't feel like it is. In other words, we're endeavoring to keep it. There is one body and one spirit. There isn't two bodies. There is one body. So I know that there's the body of Christ over there. There's the body of Christ over there. There's technically only one body of Christ. And so guys, I know you have your exclusive little club over here, but technically speaking, Paul's sort of puncturing this idea of denominationalism all throughout By the way, the book of 1 Corinthians, he's puncturing the idea of denominationalism. The whole thing. I don't know where in the world we get it and how we can even justify it. 
There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. It doesn't say 1.5, 1 1.72, 1.0001, 1. Singular integer. One baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. But each, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Why? For the equip, equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Some noses, some eyelashes, some pinky toes, some belly buttons. Why? For the equipping of the saints of, for the work of the ministry. I don't, I don't know. It would be an interesting debate if you think God ever gave a belly button to the body of Christ. It's sort of like the ticklish spot. So it's probably the guy who laughs a lot or is actually creating a lot of laughter in the body would be the belly button. I'm sure Arnold would be a belly button. <laughs> so it's, it's for the edifying of the body of Christ. So what we have in the word edifying, I know you guys are still on the belly button thing, but <laughs> the reason he has equipped the saints with specific grace, specific unction to be able to accomplish something is for the equipping of all the others. He has not made you strong so that you could go off and just have your own little thing, but he's made you strong so that you could edify, which means to build up and make stronger the body of Christ. Now, we're so used to hearing it that we don't recognize that Paul is making a very clear statement. You are a body. And so you've all been given attributes, strength, unction to build each other up. And when we work together and we endeavor to keep that unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, we will see something happen in this world that could never happen another way. Now, we're supposed to do this until we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man. See, God's Spirit has given us, and he's given us that which we need to be built up and edified until we become the picture of perfection, Jesus Christ himself, until the world can look at us and see an integer and see that heavenly integrity and say, so this is what Christ looks like. To a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. Everything that could possibly create a faction. A fraction. But by the trickery of men and the cutting craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. We are all to agree with that mind. The head is Christ. We are the body. That, that head is telling us how we have been equipped, what we are to do. Some of us have positions that for a season are stuck in a sock and we are completely unseen. Others of us are put on a stage and the way both of us handle those positions is of the utmost importance for the other. You see, we don't define our role. God does. The Spirit of God does. You don't just wake up, take a personality test and then go after your agenda in life. You submit to the Holy Spirit, give him your body, and say, God, put me into the body where you know I need to be. And sometimes he'll test us in a sock for a season. And guess what? He's building us stronger. And I, it sounds funny to say that he's going to take the pinky toe and make it the eye. However, God's agenda is God's agenda. He knits together a body his way. 
So before this, before the beginning of Ephesians 4, you have Paul saying very specific things. I mean, we need to read through Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 to really create the fullness of the context here. But I'm going to give you a little brief context picture before Paul is getting into this very clear statement of, look, this is how you need to live as the body. I beseech you, therefore, to me who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hid in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. So he's talking about position, Christ's position, our position in him. We are seated in heavenly places in Christ. And he's mentioning the idea of grace. Ephesians 3 is like the ultimate chapter on grace, the power of God given to the saints so that we could actually function as we ought to function. So the context of this is great authority, great power, great ability to perform that which God has assigned us to perform. So to the intent, so God has given us this grace to the intent, this is its purpose, this is why he gave it. That now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church, by the church, to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are the chosen device through which God will reveal his manifold wisdom. To me, it makes a lot more sense for him to send out an angel and just have that angel elucidate and articulate that which is mysterious. Instead, he has humbled himself to choose a very humble vessel, known as us. He says, I'm going to make you my body. I'm going to fill you with my spirit, and I'm going to cause your members to actually function in agreement and unity, so that through this weak vessel, the magnificence of the heavenly kingdom will be revealed. This is God's chosen way of doing it. Yeah, it's okay to have a little shock at that. He's choosing us. He chooses us as individual bodies and us as a corporate body. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's the context. A God who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think. That's the context what Paul goes into and says, Therefore, this is how you live as a body. That's the context. We're not coming in limping. We're coming in with triumph. Okay, Paul, tell us what we need to do. All right, therefore, you have that grace. You have the power to do this, guys. Now let me tell you what you need to do. All right, here we go. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul again, now he's speaking to a very dysfunctional church here. The church at Corinth is not healthy. And this is right in the very beginning uh, of his epistle, which is sort of declaring to you why he's writing. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. And that there be no divisions among you. Hey, church at Corinth, I'm asking you to be an integer. I'm asking you to be in agreement, to have the same message, the same mind on these matters, and to not have divisions. There's not supposed to be any fractions amongst you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. 
Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Isn't Christ an integer? Is Christ divided, is the key question. The answer back would be properly, no, he is not. He is one. The Lord our God is one Lord. That is one thing that is the foundation of all Scripture. Our God, though he be three persons, is in perfect agreement. He is not divided. The person of Christ is not divided. We are his body. We are not divided. That's the truth. Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Body life. So at, in the practicum, we're actually attempting to put these things into practice. Since we have 40 students coming out to literally begin to live, they, they have jobs, there's living life, but we are going to be laboring together to be of one mind, one spirit, one purpose, one agenda. When we wake up in the morning, we're doing something together. What are we doing? And so this is a peek into our brand new practicum program. It's a hard thing to describe. Remember, I took three hours on Friday night to give the orientation. We could go into that right now if that would be helpful. <laughs> But it's basically saying we're not just a college, we are a family. And the body of Christ has to switch from being a gathering, a group, to being a family. We have to recognize that there's a knitting between us because you handle your family different than you often handle, oftentimes handle any other relationship. You're distant from the other relationships to the degree you know, that you can be, technically. It's just like, okay, I'm not responsible for that, that's their issue. However, a family, if one of my family members is suffering, guess what? I carry that, very practically. And as a father, I'm responsible for that. I know that. But what of your suffering? Ah, do I really need to deal with that? That's, that's going to take time. You see, it does have a cost to it. Family does have uh, a drain uh, value to it. And you know, when we talk about embracing the inconvenience, that's Christianity. Christianity isn't just doing what is convenient and easy and comfortable. Christianity, by its very definition, is embracing that which is uncomfortable. You ever picked up a cross? It has splinters in it. You see, pick up your cross and follow me, he says. A cross that leads to death. That's right. Pick up that cross and deny your way of doing things. Deny that which you think would bring you life. And you will find life when you seek after it this way. Pick up that cross and follow. And when you do, when you deny yourself, you actually find life. When we finally allow ourselves to become a body, to function as a body, we will find something that we could not find any other way. Even though at first blush, it's a, it's a threat. It's like, I don't know that I want to open my life up to these people. So a family working together focused on the same thing. So one of the things that we want to do over the next few months as a practicum unit is begin to pray together begin to ask God to give us a common vision. What could we do together? How can we do this knit together as a body instead of, okay, you have a vision, go do it. You have a vision, go do it. What is our vision? It does not mean that we don't have individual lives, that we all have to live in the same room, that we have to always eat the same food. It's like, what are you eating today? Well, I need to eat the same thing then. And it's like, of course, it's going to be gluten-free. You just know it. <laughs> In other words, it's not majoring on minor things, it's majoring on major things. Let's agree on the major issues of life. Why are we here? What are we doing? Well, let's do it together then. 
If we all are in agreement of why we're here and what we're doing, then let's join forces to accomplish it in a far greater way than if we all split off in our own strength and attempted to do it. So here's our key verse that I'd really like to camp on. Acts 2.1. Now, many of you know the scene. This is, you know, in the histories of the Church of Jesus Christ. This is a huge day. And it's the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So there's 120 in an upper room. And it says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Two ones in that scripture. They were all with one accord in one place. And we see what happens. And it's quite revolutionary to the course of history. So what I want to do is go into that word. It's actually a phrase here. They were all with one accord. So the word is hamathumadon. And it's broken from two different Greek base words, hama, which some of you have heard me talk about hama, which is like, like the mirror reflection. And so it means similar, like. And so when you move, the mirror image moves. And that's hama. This is hama, which is actually very similar. It's based on the same premise, which is together, unified, or agreed, but it's speaking of a group. It's actually a word like Hama that is dealing with a group of people. So it's speaking of a group assembled, and they're together. They're unified, and they're agreed. So that's part of what this is saying. The second part is thumos, which is passion, thirst, and desire. The word has a huge range of possibilities. It could mean wrath, and it could mean just thirst. And so what we see is, obviously, they are not gathered together in wrath, in, in this scene in Acts 2, they're gathered together in agreement with something in common. What is that something that they have in common? It's a passion, a thirst, or a desire. It's the intense panting or yearning for water in the desert. A group assembled with an intense panting or yearning for water in the desert. It's not an interesting statement that that's where they were, in one place with that. So what was it that they had? The fire of heaven seems to work in and through because what happened was the fire of heaven came. What did it kindle upon? What did it flow through? It flowed through the group assembled together with unity and agreement, sharing in a common thirst for heaven's power. They all knew they needed it. They all knew where it would come from. And they all were gathered together with a common pant and longing and yearning. That is what I'm after. I can't whip it up, by the way. But I can lay it out there and say, I don't know where you're at with this, but this is something that I think we could unite on. We all know we need something. And we all know in and of ourselves, we don't have it. So therefore, are we willing to come together and say, we're in agreement. We need it. Let's thirst together. And when you thirst together in the body of Christ, there's something that happens. We've already seen the precedent in Scripture. But there's something that happens. We already have the Holy Spirit. He's already been given. However, there is a need for return, an awakening of the right arm of God in our generation, that we would see him move in a mighty way. We must be conducive. It's sort of like the pipeline to this earth is still full of all the living water. But the gate valve is closed. There's blockages. There's, there's things blocking the flow, the clear movement. We need to open it up and say, God, we're willing. We're ready. We receive. But then we also need to allow him to purge our life and to remove the blockages in the pipeline. And when that happens, and that seems to happen as part of it, is we are unified. We come together. Instead of all the divisions amongst us, we, we begin to agree on what matters most. And what happens 
is that flow of living water begins to come through. So here's a journal entry from June 1st of this year. Now, if any of you guys remember what was happening right around this time, the praying and confessing church was our topic. And God was moving inside of this church in a beautiful, beautiful way. And so here's just a, a journal entry I wrote. So Abby had written a song, and it was called When the Wind Blows. It was her first song. And you have to realize the significance of that. Abby looks like Leslie, and Leslie has stacks of songs that she's written. That's the way that she has her quiet times with God. She just writes songs. Most of you have never heard most of her songs. And so when Abby writes a song, her first song, it was a really special thing. So the lyrics to Abby's first song were handed to me yesterday by my my, my little almost six munchkin. I was preparing to send off my sermon notes to Sandy for the message, The Gospel Challenge, when I unfolded her precious little offering. When the Wind Blows by Abby. When the wind blows, it's a really good time to come outside, believe in him. So that was it. Now what's funny is it's not completely logical. I understand. However, ironically, when I was reading it, I understood what it meant. It like actually had significance to me. Because you have to realize what I was preaching on that day. The gospel challenge, we must go. When the wind is blowing, the sail is put up. You catch that wind. Where is it taking you? It's taking you outside into a lost world. What do you need to share? Believe in him. It's literally, I mean, it was, I'm sitting there staring at this going, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. When the wind blows, it's a really good time to come outside. Believe in him. So I cherish that. I, I really do. So this is still part of my journal entry. Yesterday was the five-year anniversary of Ellerslie inaugural banquet night. Oh, what memories. These past five years have been chock full of difficulty and grace, trial and triumph. I wouldn't trade them out for anything. You are doing something new in my life. I always talk to God in my journal, so just in case you're wondering, who's he talking to? You are doing something new in my life, in our ministry, in our church. Here is the text I sent out this past week to our church body. Dear church family, God has entrusted our church with something very precious. If we were to translate these past couple weeks into a Jesus parable, it could be said that the king has handed us ten talents of gold. What we do with this trust is now of the utmost importance. I'm not sure if every one of you is aware of what has been taking place, so I wanted to briefly catch us all up. On Sunday, May 17th, the message, The Sin of Silence, was given. It was a strong and convicting message on the confessing church that left us all trembling and deeply inspired. At the conclusion of the message, three men got up onto the stage and gave practical means by which we can begin to do something as a church. As an extension of that message, we suggested the body, church body consider coming back to the chapel on Tuesday night to make sure the spiritual quickening was brought to full term and not unwittingly miscarried. Come Tuesday night, the 19th of May, it was shocking to realize that almost the entire church had shown up and was packed inside our tiny chapel ready to do something. Somewhere around three hours later, we concluded after enjoying over two hours of corporate prayer. And it wasn't the stale, prepackaged variety of prayer, but the robust, fervent variation. It was a remarkable night that left us all in awe, desiring more. On Sunday, May 24th, after the message, The Power of Tears, another invitation to join together on the upcoming Tuesday was issued. And again, a full house arrived at the chapel, eager and expectant. The first week proved that even young children fit into this. And so on the night of May 26th, entire families showed up, with children actually wanting to come and be a part of whatever God had in store. With no defined plan for the evening, we began at 6.15 p.m. And multiple hours later, I don't actually know how late it went. I only know I arrived home at 10. We found ourselves as a body deeply softened by the spirit of grace and deeply stirred by the profundity of the night. It truly was a picture of the body of Christ in action. 
As a church, we have been entrusted with 10 talents of gold. gold. God has placed this very real deposit of grace into our hands, and I feel the awesome weight of investing it properly. What Sunday, May 31st has in store for us, or what Tuesday night, June 2nd may bring, I honestly don't know. But I do know this is a work of God and not man. He is leading us, and I fully expect him to continue. I know how easy it is for us as men to quench this precious wind, and I want each of us to live with a great sensitivity toward this matter, allowing the Spirit of God to convict us and purge us of even the smallest indiscretions. And let us be faithful, actively engaged in prayer that the spiritual wind currently blowing through our body would only increase in power and intensity and move outward from our midst into our local community. We have not been entrusted with this heavenly treasure only to cram it into our own pockets, but to share it, to give it, and to bring it unto others. May we all not only be personally edified by this grace, but empowered to go forth and confess unto others the beauties of our King and his glorious gospel with much love and expectancy. This is still my journal entry. I know I, I wax long and eloquent in those as well. Yesterday morning, I delivered the message, the gospel challenge, and even as I did, I knew my life could never be the same. The idea woven into it, if correct, demands that I alter my life to its priority. As Abby's song declares, when the wind of the Spirit is blowing, we need to go outside and say, believe in him. Lord, I stand in awe and amazement. I'm trembling in the depths of my soul and eager to see what you have in store next. I realize how delicate this wind can be and how easy it is to grieve and quench. But Lord, I ask that you would be the one doing the works. For faithful is he who is called who also will do it. This is a short one. I edited it down to just a paragraph, so don't panic. June 19th, I actually called it the revival. What God was doing, even though for many of us we have a tough time remembering it, is just sort of a distance, you know, foggy memory of what took place. And I even bring up some of the sermons like, ah, I think I remember that. For me, this is emblazoned. This is very deep. And for me, one of the things you'll even notice in us stopping on the Thursday nights and waiting to start again this Tuesday was very purposeful because we actually felt like we were still trying to prop something up in our own strength. And we really wanted this to have the wind of God behind it. It doesn't mean that it would be bad to still meet. It's just that we wanted to take time to pray and to move things in place so that we could be focused when it does come. So the revival, this is June 19th. The significance of this season is beyond easy description. I sense that everything has changed in my life, family, and ministry. We are being remade by the Spirit of God. Decisions have come forth in the past few days that will forever alter the direction of Ellerslie, from the launch of the something, to, which is now called the practicum, to the relaunch of a new rendition of Ellerslie training. I wait with bated breath to see what is next. So... We have the practicum, and we have an experiment. Can 40 Christians do something together as an integer? Now, what's funny is most of us would say, well, that's far more likely than the whole church here. Yeah, but if 40 can do it, so could 400. If 400 could do it, so could 4,000. I'd be interested in actually praying very specifically about this Operation Integer, that we would learn how to function as a body and do one thing. It doesn't mean that we all have to eat the same food, like I said, or that we all have to talk to the same person, share the same person, the same gospel. But we do need to have the same gospel, but we need to share it everywhere we go. We're doing the same thing. We're about the same thing. We're moved by the same thing to accomplish the same end. 1 Corinthians 12, and you'll see this is a combination of various scriptures. This is going to be dealing with spiritual gifts. I have trimmed this down not because I'm trying to diminish spiritual gifts, okay, just please, because I know that that could be a nice fraction uh, in the midst of us as well. But what I'm wanting you to see is what Paul's argument is in regards to why 
the gifts of grace are given to the church. You're going to see that this is very similar to Ephesians. Paul says the same thing in all things that he's saying. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. So you are given something by the Spirit of grace for the benefit of all. One and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. So though we are many members, we are actually one body with many members. My body has many members in it. Each one of these fingers could be considered a member. This whole hand could be considered a member. This left arm is a member. My eyes are members. My tongue is considered the littlest member in the book of James. My heart, my appetite, my sexuality, my capacity for sleep, everything about me has membership, if you will, into the body of Eric. And yet that body of Eric submits to the headship of Jesus Christ. And now this body begins to live as if it is truly bought with a price. I am under the lordship and the mastery of Jesus Christ. And I say, oh body, you will obey the word of God, Jesus Christ. What he says goes in this body. And every member needs to come into agreement. So if Paul was speaking to my body, he would say, Eric, I desire that your body and all its members would speak the same thing. That they would be in agreement, one with the other. I mean, why wouldn't he say that? Doesn't that make sense? That's right, it makes sense. Because that's the only way a body can truly function. So what does he say to us? He says that exact thing. Oh, I desire that you would all speak the same thing, have the same mind, that you would not be divided into different camps and divisions, but that you would all do the same thing, that you would be about the same Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. There should be, listen to this, no schism in the body. Did you hear that? There should be no breaking, no fractions in the body. I know, it sounds like such an extreme statement. I'm just reading what he says. There should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Just like my ankle. If my ankle's hurting, my whole body has to adjust around it. My whole body compensates to help my ankle, not have weight on it. The same is true with anything. When one part of your body is suffering, guess what? The rest of the body is suffering right along with it. And that's a very important thing for us to realize. We're a body. So let's begin to function as a body. Or if a member is, one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. So here we're in the book of John. This is oftentimes called the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ in John 17. Jesus is giving his great request as the high priest. He says that they all may be one. There it is. There it is. This is what Jesus Christ is coming to accomplish. He has given up his life to accomplish something. That is that we would be brought into unity in the person of Christ, in that one body that he is going to sacrifice and give up, that he is going to create an entry point so that we could enter in by faith and be knit together, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, 
that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. So how is the world going to believe that Jesus was ascended to the Father, that his work truly was efficacious at a salvific level for us? How are they going to believe that? Well, strangest is that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe. Isn't that a fascinating statement? When we become one in Christ Jesus, we become effective to actually show the world that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So the math of the modern church, the math of the modern church, and this is what we've all grown up around, is division, fractions, which in the scriptures is called factions, and subtraction. It's mathematical terms. Isn't that interesting? It's a breakdown. And what we have in the church of Jesus Christ is an absolute meltdown. Talk about subtraction. We are losing our young people. I don't know if you've heard the statistics. Anywhere from 66%, some studies have even shown high 80s, low 90 percentile of young people that were raised in church youth group have left the church after their freshman year of college. Uh, Yeah, uh, subtraction. That's what we're experiencing in the body of Christ. That's actually not the, the verbiage mathematically that God intends for his body. That's the exact opposite. Let's look at uh, the math of the heavenly church. Integer, one. Oneness is like all over the place. So one, whole, addition, multiplication. And they multiplied. Uh-huh. That's actually the work of the church. We bring about a multiplication of the work of grace in this world, not a subtraction. Can we really be one? Can we be an integer? So Jesus gives us the secret in John 17. He says, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one. So he's given us a secret. And actually, how is he in us? He's in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of grace in us. You see, when he's in us, that means... He's in us by the Holy Spirit, but the, he and the Father are one. So when the Holy Spirit is in us, Jesus is in us, and so is the Father. And so I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one. This is the secret. You are in Christ, and therefore Christ is in you. And in Colossians, Paul says that's the hope of glory. That's the hope that they will one day see the grandeur and the magnificence of the king. This is how it works. We must be invaded. We must give over these bodies and allow them to be ruled and operated by the Holy Spirit. Can we really do one thing and do it together? So I'm going to go through some agreement points that I would say, I believe that as a church, we have established this already. And I say, let's make sure we do know what we believe and we do know where we stand. Agreement point. This is all about Jesus. Every single thing we're doing is all about Jesus Christ. Everything is for his glory. Now, some people could feel bad for the Holy Spirit and for the Father. They're like, well, what about them? What are they, chopped liver? You see, this is God's protocol. This is God's method for doing it. He says, lift high the sun. He tells us to bend our knee and declare the lordship of Jesus Christ unto the glory of the Father. You see, when Jesus Christ is seen, who do we see? The Father. When Jesus Christ is lifted up, who do we get to know? The Father. Who does Jesus bring us to? The Father. Who's bringing you to Jesus? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the butler unto that agenda. So we don't make the Holy Spirit our focus because the Holy Spirit is that, uh, Jesus, 
Don't focus on me. Turn to Jesus. See, the Holy Spirit is God. He's the third person of the Godhead. There's no diminishment of that. However, the Holy Spirit himself speaking to us is saying, make Jesus your king. Make it about him. So when the Holy Spirit is truly operative in our midst, he's lifting high Jesus Christ. That is a point we must agree on. We are here to glorify King Jesus. An agreement point. The word of God is true, right, and without lie. We need something to agree on. Well, we better get the text of Scripture down. We need to know this is the Word of God. There's, there's the triumvirate of the Word of God, the Word of God in text, the Word of God in person known as Jesus Christ, and the Word of God in action at the cross. He lived out what was in that Bible. He did it. He accomplished it, and that's where we put our faith. We put our faith in that Word of God in text because it perfectly showcases the Word of God in person. He's revealed in him, and then it totally foretold and enunciates why the word of God in action is efficacious for us. And so therefore, we put our full confidence on that word of God. And if we don't, we're undermined. Satan's great agenda is to say, but did God really say that? And our answer in agreement is, yes, he did. Thanks for bringing it up. We know it is spoken by God, and we know if it's spoken by God, it cannot lie. And it is beyond fact It is true. It is without any error in it. It is something that is worthy of our complete confidence and faith. So let's give another agreement point. We all are agreeing that we need something more than we currently have now. I don't know about you. I mean, I love my life. I'm satisfied in so many regards, except for I have a burr in my saddle. And that is that I know that God intended the church of Jesus Christ for something more. And as long as I know that, if I could just get that out of my mind, I could just... I could relax, but I can't relax. I'm here for a short season on this earth, and I've been entrusted with a burden. And it's a burden to see the church of Jesus Christ regain its rack of glory, to regain its ancient height and stature, to see the power of God flow freely through, to change the world in which we live. Not for my sake. I don't care if I'm in the sock. I want this for his sake. That's what needs to unite us. Do we have an agreement point? An agreement point. Well, why do we need this power of God? Why do we need this something more? We need the power of the Holy Spirit to empower us to a far greater degree. We cannot do this in our own strength. We're cowards naturally. So when we start talking about going out and declaring, believe in him, sounds great in a sermon. It doesn't sound great in our soul when we take the first step out the doors. And someone's looking at us going, you're not one of those Christians, are you? You're like, oh, no, 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 I'm not. Are we ready to do the work of the king? Not in and of ourselves, but with the power of the Spirit of God. Oh, yes, we are. An agreement point. We are needing this power in order to truly become a praying and confessing church. What's our end? To truly reveal the kingdom of heaven. What's the kingdom of heaven revealed through? A church that prays and a church that confesses. Confession is the word homo-legeo. Homo, meaning like and similar, as I mentioned before. Legeo is from the Greek word logos, which means word. We are in agreement, perfect stride, perfect matching movement with the word of God. So when the word of God moves, we move. When he speaks, we speak. Jesus was homo-legeo with the Father. When the Father spoke, he spoke. What the Father did, he did. We need to be homologeo with the Spirit of God who is pointing us to the Word of God. And he says, this is what the Word of God says, and we move in agreement. We are being knit together to be a praying 
and a confessing body. My dream. So here, very simply put, remember my extra dream point I put on earlier? That we would be marked by heavenly integrity? So here, very specifically. Now, I have to forewarn you that I've taken some liberties in Acts 2.1. So I put at the bottom, just in case you're wondering, severely modified to make a pithy point. When Tuesday night, October 6th, 2015, had fully come, they, the church at Ellerslie, were all hamathumadon, assembled together in unity and agreement, sharing a common thirst for heaven's power. So yes, this is an indirect marketing campaign for Tuesday night. I feel so strongly that if we take steps forward out of our comfort zone to say, let's do this, we may not all have the answer for it, but we do know the one who does. And we say, we're going to lay ourselves before you, God. And we're going to say, we know you have it. We know we don't. So here's your body. Show us how to function as an integer. Teach us, train us, correct us. If we're all interested in the same thing here, I guarantee you the world will be changed. The integer application. You know, this integer application cannot just be for Tuesday night. This integer application has to start right now in each of our lives. The in integrity of the individual body. For some of you, you say one thing with your mouth and you're living something different with your life. Your body has to come into agreement. Oh, that your body would say the same thing in all of its members. Oh, that what you believe in your mind would actually be agreed upon with your hands, your eyes, your tongue, your heart, your feet, that you would live out Christianity. And you say, I don't know how to do that. The secret is found in Jesus Christ. You enter into Jesus Christ by faith, and now you have access under the throne room of grace, where you may obtain mercy and grace for help in time of need. You have a need to have this hand match with your belief system. This heart, your sexuality, your appetite, begin to come into agreement with that great mind of God as revealed in Scripture. Well, I can just forewarn you, you can't do it on your own. But you do have the grace of God given you in Jesus Christ. You have the power of the Holy Spirit offered to you. You need to learn how to take that up just as a sword. If you have a sword at your foot and you're being bopped in the nose, what's the best thing to do? How about you pick up the sword and actually swing it? And even if that swing be imperfect, God will use your simple faith, even the faith of a child, to dash to pieces that which is harming you. Integrity in the individual marriage. We don't just believe in good marriages, but our bodies actually come into agreement. And there's a lot of factors in marriage when it comes to the body. That we actually have our bodies, have our minds, have all our members in agreement to serve a common end. That we would live in a specific way, which is like Christ, unto our spouse. Integrity in the individual family. That we wouldn't just esteem being good parents, but that every member in our body would actually agree with good parenting. Christ parenting. How does the Father parent me? I've had that thought more than a few times as I give way to impatience. That I'm thinking, God, I am so glad you are not like me. Because if he gave way to the frustration that I can give way to, I'm in trouble. Because I'm not the most perfectly obedient kid, even though I want to be God, make me an integer. I want every facet of my being to be constant and in agreement and of the same mind with you. I know you've purchased me everything I need on the cross of Christ for that. So here I am afresh. Please, do this work in me. 
Integrity in the individual church, which is what we've been talking about today. That's a dream. Integrity in the corporate church, not just the 300 of us, but what about the church global? What if we start here? Instead of worrying about the church global, what if we just start here and say, God, knit us together. Show us how this is done so that we can more effectively serve the body of Christ. And when those of you that are here for a season go home, you know what it's like. You've tasted something. And so you begin to pray for that back home. You begin to labor, even if it's in the sock and you're the hidden pinky toe for a season. You're praying and you're serving in your position to begin to help the body of Christ recognize and realize what it would look like if all of us were of one mind, one spirit, and one purpose. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Looney, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.